had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome. I'm delighted to have you all join me on Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Join me the first Monday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern. And today I'm excited about some practical, actionable strategies, which we always do creating high-performing, inclusive teams, organizations, classrooms. And today, I'm delighted to have Dr. Abby Ferber with me, my colleague, looking at preparing students. How do you help students not just create an inclusive classroom, talking about triggers when you first set it up, but how do you actually teach them the tools, skills to navigate difficult conversations in the moment throughout the entire semester? so that they're able to notice when they feel triggered, engage effectively with each other, listen deeply, and all to really accelerate learning, developing critical career life skills they need now and in the future. So let me just introduce Dr. Da- uh, Abby Ferber. Abby, thank you for joining me. We've known each other a number of years. I think we first met at the White Privilege Conference. Yeah, I think so. You've been co-coordinating that and leading in so many ways for as long as I've been a part, I want to say 12 or more years, but you're also the director of the Matrix Center, the advancement of social equity inclusion at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. So we are now colleagues here in Colorado. Yeah, I say Colorado. So I think you haven't been living here as long. (laughs) No, I am. And here, as people may know, when you are not born here, you're probably always an outsider. I love it. Yeah. But then the Knapsack Institute, your summer program, the Matrix Center. Plus, I didn't even know how many books you're the author of and just all the great scholarship around the far right and strategies to create racial justice. I could keep going, but just say a little bit about, a little more about who you are and your passion for why you want to teach undergrad, graduate students about hot buttons and triggering events. Sure, and let me just first correct, I'm no longer on the organizing team of the National Annual White Privilege Conference, but still attend, and it's a a life-transforming experience. I teach a class, actually, where students go and attend the conference, and once they go the first time, they go back every year, and I think that, you know, ties into why I do this work, because running the NAPSEC Institute, working with the White Privilege Conference. I work on a number of local boards, but everything I do, my research, teaching, service to the academy is all um, synergistic and all coalesces around issues of social justice. And most of my research has been on uh, race as it intersects with other identities and specifically focusing on issues of privilege 
as it intersects with other identities. And I feel all, you know, just talking about privilege is this hot button issue today because the media has turned it into that. And I think there's positives and negatives about that. You know, I think about a decade ago, no one was talking about privilege in the media. So in a lot of ways, it's like exciting to see that there's finally public discussions about that and seeing more and more people, you know, in a positive way, talk about why it's important to talk about privilege. So that's been really gratifying. And so I think it's also really important then for our students to understand what privilege really means, what it's about, so they can contribute to those dialogues in a civil way. Because of course, I think civil, engaging in civil discourse is the skill many more people need today. That's an understatement of the call. Um, Now I know when I was in classrooms or workshops, we were talking about sexism or homophobia, heterosexism, I loved it because those are my marginalized identities and I would speak truth to power, I'd have emotion. Yeah. When we started talking about race and racism, when I was in my doctoral programs, I was in a workshop where I was a learner, I would pop into white fragility. I was in my privileged identity, I'd be defensive and it was harder for me and so once I started learning about hot buttons and maybe why I triggered myself, had an emotional reaction where I felt scared, defensive, I'd be called racist or... So if we think about classrooms where, especially if the content you're talking about, gender, equity, sexuality, class, disability, race, but even other classrooms, there are difficult conversations, even if it's not your content. Right. What are some ways that you specifically prepare students in this current national context to be able to hear things where they disagree, notice they have a reaction, and to engage in deeper dialogue and not that debate where we just argue and see who wins? Right. So I think there's a lot of ways, but the, the one I would like to talk about first is the issue of triggers. And I'm so excited to be here in conversation with you because it's primarily work that you have done and work with the Social Justice Institute that has informed the ways in which I talk about triggers in my classroom. And, you know, right now, it's really frustrating to hear how triggers have been talked about in the media and especially in far-right websites such as this reform and the college fix and those are very highly funded small websites the kind that go in and secretly record professors teaching classes along the same lines of the professor watch and unfortunately you know one of the things I've been studying lately is how articles that appear on those very marginal websites get picked up move more and more towards the mainstream and occasionally enter mainstream articles. Like I saw one recently in the Washington Post where they cited campus reform as a legitimate news source and they're not. And so much of what you look at on their website is just plain lies. They distort information. I was recorded once at the White Privilege Conference talking about race and they changed the language so it sounded like I was saying rape. So that's the kind of uh, news sources that are out there. And I think they've really, really redefined 
what triggers and talking about triggers really means for most of us doing social justice work and working in academia. And so they often talk about triggers as, you know, these students that are like snowflakes or these, you know, fragile, emotional millennials, even Bill Maher talks about that. And that not, you know, that is not at all to me what talking about. Did we lose you or just did I lose me? Can you hear me? We lost you for a minute. And I agree that the conversation has really been to discredit people who will talk honestly about the impact of microaggressions, the impact of biased, racist, sexist, homophobic comments in the classroom, mm -hmm. which is different from I disagree. But I join you in the, not only in the national conversation, but in our classrooms and in our campuses and communities, this resurgence and of emboldened folks that are just saying racist, white supremacist, homophobic, anti-Semitic, disability oppressive, I could keep going, right. and calling it free speech. And that's coming into our classrooms. And so what you're beginning to talk about is the context is different. And so how do we support faculty who are scared to even have these conversations about the content, or if there's a crisis on campus, another racist incident, and students are coming in a cumulative impact triggered, and they wanna just see if this is a brave space they can show up and not have racism right. in the classroom. So what are some ways that you, from the first moment in your syllabus and even your first class, you let the students know, these are some skills and competencies we're gonna learn and we're right. going to do it throughout the class so that we can, when you feel a hot button or our conversation gets more heated, we don't shut down. We don't go into unresolved conflict. We really right. love each other. So what do you do? Okay. So continuing the discussion about triggers, the way I use that in the classroom as an exercise, and I use that um, maybe the second week of classes I teach. I actually teach only online now. But when I taught face-to-face, -face, it was maybe the second week. And so I, I have an activity where students read about the common ways in which people respond to triggers. And I give some examples of triggering statements. Uh, and most of them are having to do with the classroom. But I often have them think in their mind about examples of family members that trigger them. Because that's often, I think, the easiest way to understand what a trigger is. Most of us have someone there that, you know, triggers us in some deeply way. And they can understand that emotional feeling in their gut and the sort of immediate frustration, anger builds up. And so we talk about, have them talk about examples of triggers, maybe in pairs or uh, on their own, write something down and or as a homework assignment. And then I have them read some materials from the Social Justice Training Institute where it talks about, this is one handout I took from, I think the SJTI website that talks about the interpersonal roots of triggering events. And I think that is so important because it asks them to stop and think about why those things trigger them. And, you know, I'm, don't want to assume everyone, but probably a lot of listeners are familiar with the metaphor of the knapsack that Peggy McIntosh first used, the, the knapsack of privileges. But I like to talk about this then as the baggage 
we also have with us and the baggage that we all carry with us depend you know even if we experience oppressed identities privileged identities we all have this baggage from our history and usually i think that that's where some of our underlying deep emotions around specific triggers come from and so i have them on their own as a homework assignment identify their you know the things that are most commonly triggers for them and then i also have them identify examples of triggers they've experienced in classes and then they explore um where what past experiences have informed that kind of deeply emotional reaction and then also i love this on the handout it talks about fears what are people afraid of in terms of being triggered and a lot of it has to do with focus of the conversation, not wanting to share what it is they're really feeling. A lot of students I find are afraid of saying the wrong thing. And so oftentimes one student may erupt sort of, there's a great book by Helen Fox called When Race Breaks Out. And I love that, to that title because that's what often happens. And other students then don't know how to respond and they tend to go inwards, right? And it's important for us as facilitators and faculty to watch the reactions in the room and to see how other people are responding at that moment. And part of the activity students do on their own is they list it, look at the list of many possible ways that you can respond to a triggering event. And I ask them then to think about that example in a classroom where they felt triggered, how they responded at that moment. And it might've been things like just avoidance, um, feeling anger, um, responding by emotionally shouting out back at that person, you know, and, and not doing it very respectfully. And so a whole host of ways that really are not very productive, do not lead to civil discourse. And so I then have them write how do you wish you responded? And how would you like to respond next time? They start thinking about all the different ways they could respond that would lead to more productive dialogue. And then what I find in my classes is students now have learned the language of triggers and they will use it in the classroom. So they will say, you know, excuse me, what you just said, Mark, really triggered me for this reason. And they say it in a respectful way. And then the person who made the triggering comment often, you know, acknowledges in some way, wow, that wasn't my impact, right? But now I hear the, or that wasn't my intent, but I hear the impact it had on you. Other times, you know, of course, they don't care. And then you have to ask some leading questions. I love the book by Les Mounois, what's it called? Facilitating difficult dialogues, I think, a whole list of questions, uh, you know, that you can follow up with, like, what I'm hearing you say is, is that correct? Or do, does anyone else in the classroom want to share how they're feeling? And, but generally what I find, especially in my online classes, is that someone will say th something in an online discussion group that's very triggering and unlike a face-to-face -face class, I don't have to usually jump right in. 
I can watch and see how other students respond. And they will use that language of triggering and in a very polite way. So they'll say, you know, Sammy, I think you raised a good point here in terms of such and such. The other hand, when you talked about this, I felt really triggered and I felt triggered because blah, blah, blah. And oftentimes they explain some of their baggage or they explain and make themselves really vulnerable and share stories about their own personal lives that help explain why that statement really triggered and was hurtful to them. This is so exciting. You've actually gone through the whole trigger event cycle from a stimulus happens and you've given students the tools to go, it is common to feel an emotional reaction. It may be low, medium, high emotions. Mm -hmm. But often in classrooms, what I hear is folks will say, I'm triggered. And then either the faculty or the students will freeze and then they right. move on. What you're doing, and I know some other faculty are doing, is the tools and skills to stay engaged in the conversation. And you started with, notice that the comment, the stimulus, step one, yes, crossed a line. And the intensity of your emotion might have something to do with, this is the fifth time you've heard of a racist incident, and now there's a racist comment. So your emotion is bigger than this moment. Or there's things from your past I know for me, around the dinner table, when I try to speak, my dad would interrupt me, my brother would interrupt me, and then they would talk to each other. So now, when men, particularly white men, talk over me, don't listen, don't follow up, I have an ex a higher emotional reaction than if you were to interrupt me. And so mm -hmm. really help the students and yourself look at why might my emotion be a little bigger today, whereas last week it wasn't. And if folks are listening, wanting some of the resources, if you just go back to the Transformation Change website, I not only have a link, discounted price, you can buy my book, Turn the Tide, but you don't need that. There's a worksheet on worksheets that some of the mm -hmm. stuff Abby's referencing. And so you can uh, get some of the materials that you can use in your classes. And I'll tell you a few other free resources in a bit. Um, Great. To have students be able to stay engaged when there's a moment they're observing it, they're experiencing, and particularly the student who has either written something or said something to be able to say themselves, I hear the impact, can you say more? That's a critical yeah. skill. What are you noticing the impact on learning is? Because yeah. uh, you said words like polite and respect, and some folks listening might think you're saying, no, squash your emotions. It's not what you're saying. No. Let's move into the difficult moment yeah. in a way that we can hear each other and learn from each other. Yes, and it will often lead to a back and forth dialogue then where they each want to know to go deeper. And so students develop deeper relationships that way. They learn more about each other beyond what they assume at the start, right? And so I really see students, especially in online classes, making themselves more vulnerable. And I think it has something to do with it being, you know, somewhat anonymous. They don't see each other. And in online classes, they can take the time to think about the trigger and how they want to respond, which is often hard to do in in-person classes. However, in person, in dialogues, you can always take the time to stop and reflect before answering. And I think that's what's one thing essential all students learn is they learn that self-reflection to think about what they're going to say before they say it 
and to think about what the impact might be. And then also some degree of humility and being, you know, not afraid to make a mistake because the other person doesn't, you know, just, you know, get extremely upset and say, I'm so offended. How could you say that? Even though that might be what they're feeling, but instead they respond in a way where their goal is to help educate that other person and really assume the best of them, assume that they're there to learn. And I, and that's what I find happens in the majority of cases. Very t few times do I find someone is just shut down, doesn't want to engage, doesn't want to learn. And um, those students, you know, try, I try various ways to minimize the impact they have. But I think it's always important to think about the impact on those who are feeling triggered by what someone else said. And so there's, there's many other methods that I use in the classroom to the way so that students can respond when they're triggered. If it's not working so well, a dialogue at that point, and I see emotions becoming more heated. So then I can build in some time for them to stop and reflect. And so oftentimes I will say, okay, you know, in a face-to-face -face class, let's take a break now. There's a lot of different feelings going on. It's a very emotional subject. It's something that, you know, in our culture is a highly emotional subject. And so it's really important that we be able to talk about it in civil ways. That's one of the goals of the course. And I say, my, my job is not to change your opinions, but to help you express them in ways which continue to build relationships and engage in dialogue and learn from each other. So I'll say something like, let's just stop and write for 10 minutes. Write about what you're feeling, what's going on, what you're observing. Another thing I love that another colleague, Trey Wentling, I don't know if he developed it or taught it to us, um, but it's called the Crumple Survey. And so depending on the size of the group, you know, if it is not such a huge group, you can ask people to write down on a piece of paper without their name. What are they feeling right now? What are they observing? Or what is their reaction to what they just heard? And then they, it's kind of fun because they crumple up the piece of paper and you go around with like an empty trash can or a bowl and you have everyone toss them into that bowl. And then you walk around and have everyone pick one up. So it's not theirs. But then we go around and each person reads what's written there. And so it's very powerful then for them to look around then and say, wow, this many people, you know, felt really hurt by what I just said, or, you know, this many people share that person's views or, you know, they learn a lot about each other in the classroom in a way that is a little more safer because we don't know who it is that's expressing that feeling. And you have introvert, extroverts, different learners, yes. different bravery. And what yeah. you're doing is creating an environment that increasingly people will choose to speak the that what they're feeling, what they're thinking, not mm -hmm. a right, wrong, good, bad, punish. It's perspective taking, understanding different perspectives, the impact of behavior, life, career skills. Yes. We're learning in the classroom while the content of whatever we're talking about, we're also learning. Yes. Um, and the radio show I did last month was about how to create inclusive classroom from the start. And what you're talking about is building on that with really key 
dialogue, navigating conflict skills. That's not a lecture, but you right. have people in dyads, small group reflections, homework over several classes, you're coming back to it. Right. And it's, it's actually a foundational skill you're teaching on top of the other content of whatever the course is. It's very Yes. I think they really need to learn those interpersonal skills and how to, how to really engage in critical dialogues with each other in order to have deep discussions about the content. And, and something else I wanted to say, going back to our, the start of our discussion about triggers is that, you know, the way it's been twisted around by the right wing to, you know, be seen as some kind of excuse for people to get out of learning I really don't see it that way at all. And I know very few people who say, you know, this is going to trigger a lot of people. And so feel free to leave the room if you need to. I mean, the approach I take is simply letting them know a lot of material in the class is going to be triggering. When I teach a course about gender and sexuality, and I'll let them know we're going to be talking about rape and domestic violence and other you know, things that are really horrifying and people have experienced themselves in the classroom. And I think the reason why helping students understand their triggers now is because, you know, before the 70s, 80s, for sure, we weren't teaching about that subject matter very much, right? Before we started to bring in all of those missing voices and concealed histories around gender, around LGBT identities, around slavery and the history of lynching and reconstruction. We've brought in so many topics that are very sensitive, very um, often polarized politically, and often relate very closely to people's own experiences. And so that's why I think that's when talking about triggers became essential. And it's not, it's not the issue that now we have much more diverse classrooms, and so we're trying to coddle certain students. It's that we're dealing with sub, substance and subject matter that can be triggering to everyone. And you know, the typical white male kind of stereotype student that we imagine triggers help them understanding their triggers help them just as much as every other student. Understanding triggers helps every student in the classroom. Just great points. Before we go to break, I want to see you to share, how can people find you? So if people want to know more about the programs or services or the mm -hmm. books or resources, how can people learn more about you? Well, I think you have some information on the website. I can give you my email address to add there and some websites. Uh, there is a direct website to our NAPSEC Institute, which is a three-day intensive institute where this is what we focus on. It used to be aimed just at faculty, but now it's aimed at educators in the broadest sense. And our philosophy is that everyone is an educator. Everything you do all the time, people are paying attention. And so we also, a lot of people don't know, through the Matrix Center, we publish a journal called Understanding and Dismantling Privilege, and that is open access, totally free, free to submit articles to, mm. and just an academic journal. So I'll send you those web links, and hopefully people will look us up and 
feel free, anyone should feel free to email me at any time with questions about our current dialogue or the programs that we offer. Fabulous. And again, for folks that maybe can't find the, the website, if you go to my website, drkathyerberry.com backslash book dash worksheets, book dash worksheets, you'll find a lot of the resources Abby was talking about. You can also find um, like a 12 minute video that I did about navigating triggers and my website backslash triggered video, triggered video, all one word. I also five years did a five years ago, did an animated video, just kind of what's a trigger hot button that you could really bring into classrooms and Mm -hmm. that's website backslash book dash gift. And then I have another one website backslash hot button quiz. And what that is, is something you could have the students take, your faculty take, your people in your organization, and they can just see, I think it's a list of a hundred different common hot buttons. So they can do it anonymously and, or you can use these worksheets. So when we come back to break, more conversation with Dr. Abby Ferg about how to prepare students to navigate difficult situations in the classroom. We'll see you on the other end of the break. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Stop circling around difficult issues and find out what's been holding you back. Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy O'Bear. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. If you struggle with fear and anxiety, you know how powerless and stuck these emotions can make you feel. You've tried everything, but nothing helped you overcome these blocks. Dr. Friedman Schaub, award-winning author of The Fear and Anxiety Solution, created a special program which helped thousands of his clients to become healthy, happy, and confident again. Learn how to eliminate negative self-talk, let go of your emotional baggage, and replace limiting beliefs. With Dr. Friedman's accelerated program, you can break through your challenges. Visit thefearandanxietysolution.com. Is traditional medicine not working for you? Do you still feel as if your health isn't 100%? Here at the Holistic Medical Center, Dr. Nushin Darvish and the qualified staff look through the dimensions of wellness and start a healing plan prioritized to your needs. Our physicians assess the whole you until complete health is achieved. Get the help you need by visiting drdarvish.com or call 425-451-0404. Do you want the knowledge and wisdom to understand where spirituality, science, and psychology intersect? Then join the Karmic Path Radio Show with Tina and Laura on TransformationTalkRadio.com, Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific. Follow this charmingly, disarmingly dynamic duo as they explore how psychic ability, spirituality, and karmic law tie together. For more information on Tina, Laura, and their groundbreaking work, visit TheKarmicPath.com. 
Tune in to Lucid Planet Radio with Dr. Kelly Neff. This hit show will illuminate your senses and empower you beyond your daily stressors and hardships. Renowned psychologist and author Dr. Kelly will captivate you with far-reaching topics and amazing guests as you wake to the greatest version of yourself. Learn to tap into your intuitions, think critically about our world, heal emotional and psychological wounds, and follow your passions to live your dreams. The Lucid Planet. Welcome home. Visit lucidplanetradio.com for more information. Welcome back to Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Delighted to have Dr. Abby Ferb with me. We're talking about how do you prepare students to have, engage effectively, difficult conversations in the classroom so we accelerate learning and not just stop and go back to our sides or argue and Mm -hmm. deny each other. And so, Abby, I loved all the specifics you talked about in the first half of the show. What I'd like to kind of shift a little bit now is talk about the current national context. And you started talking about that. And mm-hmm. the last three years, two and a half years, it's not new because the dynamics of white supremacy, anti-Semitism, misogyny, sexism, disability, oppression, religious, I could keep going, have been around. Right. But I have noticed a real upsurge of people feeling like they can say things that before they may not have said. And so in my workshops, that I've just had to deal with comments that three, four years ago, we wouldn't have heard. So I don't know if you and your colleagues are noticing what's going on in classrooms online and um, in Facebook. Definitely. What have you noticed? Well, first, as you said, how they show up in the classroom, let me just give a couple other tips of how I respond in the moment, because as you said, the dialogue is more and more polarized. People are voicing things that you never would have heard people say out loud in places like the classroom or the public sphere. And so we're facing that more and more. And it's definitely making our job as educators much more difficult and educators broadly defined. But one thing I really want to emphasize is in a classroom setting, it's never too late to respond. So I I think that's like the most important tool to like keep in your pocket. You know, if you freeze and you're like just sometimes blown away, I cannot believe that student said that, right? You can stop and you don't know how to respond at the moment. You can say, that's a very important point. And, you know, or that's, that's a very strong statement that we need to spend some time talking about. And so we're going to put that on the parking lot right now and we're gonna come back to it next class. And that lets all the other students know in the room, you're not avoiding it, you're gonna talk about it, but that gives you time then to research the subject a little more, talk to supportive colleagues and ask them how they might deal with it. Um, uh, Also, I think it helps to use uh, feedback mechanisms from students. You know, oftentimes I'll just have a box or something or a place online where they can post comments anytime personally just for me about how they see, you know, the class dynamics going. And so there's, there can be a plethora of ways to respond, but if you don't know what to do, let people know you take it seriously. You're going to respond and then set it aside. I love it. Some subject matters. Sorry. Uh, Like when I teach courses that deal with race at all, Affirmative action always comes up very early in the class, but students don't know enough about the history of affirmative action to have an intelligent conversation about it. 
And so I'll say, look here on the syllabus, we're going to deal with it this week, or I promise we're going to learn that. We're going to focus on it later in the semester, but we really need to learn some history first so we can have an educated dialogue. So going back and affirmative action is certainly a heart, uh, you know, hot button issue as it has been for a long time. So what I see happening side of the classroom, it, it's interesting that you said people feel more, more open and free to voice, you know, really racist, sexist, anti-immigrant, anti-gay and lesbian, trans feelings. And we see there really is an uptick in hate speech and hate crimes. And, you know, most of the mass shootings that have been occurring on a regular basis, it's white males that are almost always the perpetrators, domestic terrorism, which in the past we've so villainized Muslims that really the FBI has not paid enough attention to the majority, which are carried out by white males. So talking about what I see in the classroom, when I'm going back to what you were saying that it's, okay, people feel more free to talk about those things. Yet, ironically, I think faculty feel less free to talk about those things. Yes. Because of those campus newspapers coming in, they have um, what they call reporter internships, and just set this down. And they will have student reporters that are paid; their tuitions paid for. You can look on their websites, look at the Leadership Institute, and you'll see all of the benefits they get. It's huge, and they will come into classes. They'll register for classes. We we have stu two student reporters assigned to our campus. So we've experienced this a great deal mm. in class. They'll wait for something that a teacher will say or look for something in a handout, anything that they can pull out of context and turn into a story that sounds like this professor is brainwashing students, imposing their political ideal, ideologies. And the articles, you know, really twist around what's really happening. But they do that, and then the students drop the course. And so this is happening more and more because these organizations are highly funded. And so I know faculty, um, my most recent research projects, I wrote two articles recently, which I can send you uh, titles to or links to. Most recent one, though, and you'll probably remember this title is, Are You Willing to Die for This Work? because those faculty members get flooded with hate-filled emails. And that's very common. I, and so this study was based on my interviews of faculty who have experienced this. And one person got 700 emails in one day because there are organized armies of trolls that are gathered and sort of put into action. <coughs> They're given the email and contact information of the person to target. They're even given examples of what they might write in their statement. And for women especially, they are very gory, talk about dismemberment, talk about race, talk about there's death threats, yeah, really hor more horrible than anyone can imagine. You know, not constructive one bit about the topic, right? And people often have to have security on campus 
attend their classes. It's, it's really horrible. And some of the people I interviewed, one, one faculty member sadly said they're never going to teach that topic again because they couldn't face that threat. But most people, you know, that's their goal is to shut down the conversation. And almost everyone I interviewed said, no, this is all the more reason why I need to do this work. It's having an impact. Well, I appreciate you bring it to light what I'll bet 99% of the country never hear of just this organized violent attack when folks are just trying to have honest conversation about key issues and build life career skills for folks to be able to lead. And um, just this week, I read how uh, Assistant Vice President Dean of Students at a major university was let go or at least retired. Facebook pages from maybe four or five years ago before he had this job were just clear about his beliefs about what racism is and um, and that things and he was just speaking truth to power in my opinion and for that was cited for why so to have faculty scared about who's going to be in the class is it going to get on social media so that says to me and see what you think of this for folks that are finding some interest in what I've been saying and Abin's been saying, you want to create classrooms where people can really have authentic, real conversations that they're learning, engaging. You may want to be talking to your chair. Your dean. Mm -hmm. You may want to have conversations as a huge division department, maybe the provost and everybody about what we value about having honest, full perspective conversations. And when there are comments that are made that are racist, sexist, homophobic, anti-immigrant, we engage them from a learning perspective. Yes. And then I think faculty need training on how to be able yes. to say, when was the first time you heard that? Or what's your research for that? That's an interesting mm -hmm. comment. What, where are you beginning your information? In this course, we're reading things. You might have some other information that I'm not aware of. And so approaching it as a learning opportunity as and keeping in mind that that xenophobic anti-immigrant comments going to have impact on students which will undermine learning they'll yes. be triggered and they won't feel safe to be who they are so it's a lot of skills so to that point what are some of the skills that you've realized over the years the decades you've had to learn or you can come from this angle what are the competencies and skills that faculty need to have in order to choose courage and create an inclusive classroom where we can really talk about issues and teach students the skills to stay in dialogue? What do faculty need? Well, and there's a lot, and responding to the issue you've just been discussing, it's really important for institutions to have plans in place to support faculty because almost everyone I interviewed felt like their institutions were att attacking them as well you know, blaming them for the this whole public negative attack because, you know, chancellors get flooded with email too, lots of other folks on campus. And so universities need to be proactive and develop plans now so they know what they'll do when this happens. And I think you all universities and colleges need to assume that at some point, something like this will happen. And, you know, that may also be hate flyers all over campus, which has happened a lot, or bringing some, you know, right-wing speaker to campus and how to respond, because those often lead to these huge polarized protests. And so I have developed two documents. 
One is tip sheets for faculty. Hmm. Be prepared in advance to deal with the potential of these things happening and how to minimize that. And then another document that's tips for universities to think about in developing a university-wide plan. And there are links to those in that article, Are You Willing to Die for This? And they're also on the website of an organization called Sociologists for Women in Society. And when I was president, I developed these sheets. And there is one model policy from a university in Iowa that Diane Finnerty worked on, who some people may know of her work. She's a wonderful diversity and inclusion facilitator. And she developed that for her campus. And then so American Association of University Professors has great resources and they have a place where they ask faculty to report examples of what's happened to them so they can try and document and keep track of how frequently this is occurring. So just a couple of quick examples of things that I, not, I now do and recommend other faculty do is to put on everything, bottom of handouts, bottom of your syllabus, everywhere, that it's copyrighted by you and cannot be used without your written permission. Because those things that you create, handouts, often appear in those ultra right-wing papers that are specifically out to get you. And those handouts, of course, don't provide the full context in which you're discussing them in class. And so things can be twisted around. I also focus very much on making clear from the beginning of a class this has always been my philosophy, but now I really make it clear and put it in the syllabus that my goal is not to change people's positions, but I people need to understand a range of positions. And some of my most resistant students, I'll talk to them about why it's so important for them to understand other perspectives, because that can help them better support their own view, right? And getting, you know, that just getting students to do the work, to do the readings does change their views because they get more information, they get more knowledge. But my goal is not to say you're only going to get an A if you agree with everything that I say or the authors say, but that you have to support your views with research and documentation. So I think that's an important point. Also, uh, being able to track what students post online in online courses, everything can be saved by the university. So a student can say something. And I think, you know, a lot of students are used to these things like Snapchat where you can post something and then take it away. In online classes, that doesn't happen. So letting students know anything you post is there forever, right? And also really letting students know about university honor codes and all of that and what is and is not appropriate dialogue. So again, all of that front loading and scaffolding as you go along. And then also more tools for self-reflection. Like I always talk to students about what microaggressions are so they can understand, again, the difference between intent and impact. And then I also talk to students about implicit bias and have students take the Harvard implicit association test. And I have everyone do that because 
we find that everyone has biases. So I think one other thing that's really important to me is to break down all those us versus them assumptions that students come into my classes with. And I think any class that deals with um, oppression, privilege, social equity, and justice will always come in with these us versus them assumptions or fears that there's going to be male bashing or white bashing or students of color often afraid that they're going to have to be the one educating the whole class. And so I think it's very important from the beginning to find ways to uh, focus on the connections among everyone in the classroom, the ways in which they're similar. For example, everyone has some form of privilege, whether that's citizenship privilege or able-bodied privilege or um, class privilege or cisgender privilege. I've never encountered a student or a person when I do activities around privilege that does not have some form of privilege. And that is something that brings people together in terms of understanding the ways in which you know people react and feel when they first realize they have privilege. And so those ways of bringing people together and immediately creating, you know, a place for open dialogue where it's not polarized makes a big difference. Both and, not either or, yes. right, wrong. We're really trying to help people get the skills of multiple perspectives, critical thinking. Yes. And I love that, again, it's not lecture. Yeah. Getting people in small group, large group, homework, all that they're learning over time key life career skills. And I think, I'm sure you do, but as faculty, we need to be telling people, this is why I'm doing it. Yes. The world is shifting. You need these career skills. And if faculty can say with honesty, say, and I just talked to the director of Career Center, mm -hmm. that these are the top seven skills that employees are asking for who come to our college and university. And these five are the kind of competencies that you can build in my class while we are learning X. So yes. yes, I want you to learn this content, but what's woven through the tapestry through which are these critical skills that you need to learn in my classroom as well as graduate with, but mostly we want you to be engaged citizens. And yes. I love that you underline all the time. I'm not here to change your values, your beliefs, I'm here to have you think critically and for you to choose how much you want to keep, what you want to add, what you want to learn. But mostly you're here to learn the skills of dialogue and engagement right. while we learn the content. That so, will hopefully continue them through the rest of their life. So they have more dialogues like that. It's about student success, graduation, life skills. And if faculty can frame what we're doing around navigating difficult situations yes. in that way, it may balance the misunderstanding that as faculty, we're trying to change your mind. I actually think the greatest learning happens when we have wonderful engaged conversations and people don't know each other and they're mm -hmm. getting to know each other, but it takes a lot of skills for faculty. So one last deep breath yes. for everybody listening. Abby, thank you so much for joining me. If you would please remind people how they can contact you and might just be Googling some of the places to find your key pieces. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say just Google University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and you'll find my email address there, my bio. You will find, you can also the UCCS website, put in the little search box, Matrix Center, 
and you'll get connected to the Matrix Center. Um, I forgot to even mention that we offer a graduate certificate in diversity, social justice, and inclusion that people from actually from around the world have completed. And they're often people who are in a job and all of a sudden they're appointed the chair of their workplace diversity committee and have no training whatsoever because this isn't taken seriously a lot of places. And we have people come from the business world, K through 12, facilitators, everywhere. And so the certificate is so important. And similarly, the Knapsack Institute, because everything we've been talking about is spread out over three days. And it's very totally strategies and skills oriented. Practical strategies and skills. And that's why I wanted you to come on. How do you do this real workshop in a classroom teaching about triggers? And again, you can always email me, drkathyurbear.com and ask me your questions. If you backslash yeah. contact, you can send me anything. And Abby, I was just wondering, would you mind sending me some of those links? Because what I can oh, do yes. is I'll send an email out. I've got 10,000 or so folks on my um mailing list. So I'll send an email yeah. out with these great resources because they're just wonderful. And again, if folks are interested in getting these skills even deeper, mm -hmm. I have a virtual course, Navigating Difficult Situations. Mm -hmm. You can find out my courses, drkathyorbear.com backslash events. And just go there, Navigating Difficult Situations, the virtual course, and my designing, facilitating, powerful workshops all faculty that have taken that have said that's some of the best teaching development program I've ever had. Yeah. Dr. Abby Ferber, thank you so much. We've run out of time. I'd love I, people to- I just want to say thank you because so much of the work I'm doing around triggers is based on your research. You know, I, I couldn't have developed these triggers activities without your research. And I just want to emphasize that people should go out and get your books and get my books, take some of these courses because people often feel helpless, but there are so many skills, best practices. It can work. You can be an excellent facilitator, an excellent teacher and teach this challenging subject matter and not have it, you know, turn out like your greatest fears. Well, with that, Thank you so much for joining me, Abby. Hope to see you all next week with Dr. Ale Kovarubias continuing the conversation. Have a great month, folks. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach for more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.